Hello and welcome to another episode of the Perception Podcast with me, your host, Caroline Partridge. In this episode, I talk with a brilliant author and journalist, Lara Pawson, about current perceptions that surround writing, and she describes the fascinating and unconventional approach she had to writing her latest genre-defying work, Spent Light. We interrogate the idea of failure and what that means, and discuss solidarity and belonging in light of Lara's latest review of the National Theatre production Grenfell. Please join me as we look at life through a different lens. Hello and welcome. Welcome, everybody. Lara, it is wonderful to have you here. I've been looking forward to speak to you, uh, to speaking to you for ages. Thank you for coming onto the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so now you're uh, a, an author, a writer, and you um, have a new book coming out and um, it would be really great if you could tell us a little bit about your new book and maybe in relation to the past works that you've you've written. So my new book is coming out in January 2024 with Stevie Editions, a small independent publisher. And um, it's quite a hard book to talk about. I, I mean, I find it hard to talk about my work anyway, but this book, I think, is particularly difficult. So maybe the best way to sort of come to it is to tell you about my previous books and why I ended up being kind of prompted to write this book. So my first book was called In the Name of the People, and it was a book about a massacre that happened in Angola in southern Africa in 1977. And the reason I wrote that book was because I had been a foreign correspondent living in Angola and the Wanda in 1998, 1999, and 2000, which was during the civil war in Angola. Mm. And when I was there, I learned about this massacre that had happened in the 70s that had shaped um, many, many Angolans' understanding and their relationship with the new, independent, liberated Angola. Um, and yet it had been covered up. So mm. I ended up writing this book about this massacre. After that, I, um, and by this stage I had stopped working for the BBC, I became quite disillusioned. I wrote another book, which was a kind of accident, to be honest with you. Um, it was prompted by a, a, a theatre group who asked me if I would write a performance about my memories of, of civil war because I by then I'd lived in Angola for two and a half years and I'd also, also lived in Ivory Coast when Ivory Coast also had a civil conflict going on of, of a war and so I started writing this book about my this piece this kind of supposed to be a performance piece about my memories of war and that ended up becoming a performance but it also became a book called this is the place to be that's it. That's it. Yeah. Published by CB Editions. And that got reviewed as a sort of, oh, this is a book about this war correspondent and her memories of war. And I found that quite frustrating because, mm. yes, it was partly about that. But if you read the book, it, it's just as much about my memories of growing up in mm. southwest London and of going on holiday in Cornwall and France and of living in Hackney etc etc so when it came to writing another book 
I was very aware that people I kind of knew in the publishing industry and that kind of the machine of publishing, people were sort of saying, hey, you can write another book about Africa. And I was just like, well, why would I do that? I, I live in, I live in by now Walthamstow. Um, you know, I think I'll write a book about, maybe I'll write a book about Walthamstow because this is where my life is now. And then I thought, what can I do that is as far away from this kind of desire people have for you to write about what they understand in the publishing industry to be the exotic and the kind of dangerous, the sort of woman who goes into danger zones. It really, I felt so frustrated by that. And I thought, what can I do that is as far away from that as possible? And this was pre-lockdown. I had this idea to um, write about something that, which was as far, far from being a kind of foreign correspondent as could possibly be and as rooted in my life here in northeast London as possible. And I decided that I would write that I would begin to write within the confines of my home and nothing could be inspired from outside the home. And then I and then I kept thinking and I thought, well, how could I make it even more restricted than that? And I thought, okay, I'm gonna write about things inside my home. And I'm just going to see where it goes. And I then went to a, an event at, I think it was at Houseman's Bookshop near King's Cross, the radical left bookshop, mm -hmm. great bookshop on Caledonian Road near King's Cross. And I heard um, another writer, Joanna Walsh, talking about another writer, Sheila Hetty, who had said something about, um, in defense of kind of women writing about their lives and using their lives as, as, as a sort of springboard from which to kind of find material. She had said in defense of this something about, look, you know, we can't, we can't stare at a toaster and write a toaster, write from that about our lives. We have to use ourselves. And while I was sitting in this, um, listening to this in the audience, I thought, why couldn't you write about a toaster? Why couldn't you write about a toaster? And I went home and I sat down in front of my toaster and I started writing. I stared at my, brought, I think I actually brought my toaster to my desk and I put it on my desk and I just stared at it and I wrote the things that came into my head. And from that, I just started, I used that as my springboard and I started writing about objects in my house that that obsessed me and bits of my house as well like bits of the structure of the house so there's a point in the book where there's an inspiration from the ceiling of the house mm. uh, of the room that I'm in it's not a I mean the book is not um a non-fiction book about objects it is a, a, a I would like to call it an, an ambiguous genre it's not fiction. It's not non-fiction. It's not auto-fiction. It's not memoir. It's just writing. Mm. But it but it was inspired from a sort of obsession with um, writing about the stuff that's right in front of me. Wow, wow, that's that's incredible because that really is about being present, isn't it? It's really. Uh, in the moment but what you're writing about obviously is the 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 what the effect that that particular so you you were writing about the effect that that particular 
object had on you or about the um memory or about the thoughts that came into your mind or what what was the well sort of all of the above I mean you know there's bits of the book that are completely made up because I started you know I would stare at something and my thoughts would just start going everywhere and I would stare at it even more and I would be looking at like a a tiny piece of of the object that I was at that point obsessing on and I would write down whatever it was that came into my head. So the book is just this sort of strange, um, I mean, it's exactly what the publishing industry don't want. I mean, it was sent to my agent, tried to sell it to lots of big mainstream publishers. Um, and one of them, I remember one of them in particular was sort of, but there isn't any narrative at all. So it, it doesn't have plot. It it does have a narrative, but it doesn't have a narrative in sort of this is the beginning, this is the middle, this is the That's end. the end, yeah. It's more sort of like it begins in the middle and then it goes to another bit of the middle and then it goes to another bit of the middle and and then it stops. And in fact, funnily enough, last week I was walking, I walk a lot in Epping Forest with my dog and I was walking in Epping Forest last week and I was looking at the trees in the forest and how they grow in like really misshapen weird ways and some of them like come out of the ground and then immediately go off at a right angle so the bottom of the trunk is actually like like five millimeters from the ground as it bends down and then it goes up again and then maybe the main branch has just fallen off and I was taking pictures of these weird trees or trees that suddenly bulge out and then all the branches are strangely fallen off and then it goes up again and I was just taking pictures of them and putting on on Twitter slightly slightly provocatively mm. calling them narrative structure number one narrative structure <laughs> number two plot you know there'd be like a tree with a massive hole in it and I just put plot because I thought this is how I write I write like yeah. one of these slightly deformed but not deformed trees because this is how trees grow Mm. that's a fantastic I was going to say it's a fantastic metaphor for your writing those when you were talking about those trees and what they look like it's just like things things don't progress in a linear fashion and personally I think in terms of creativity if we try and shoehorn if there's okay we have to have some form of structure in a way and that is the is the writing, but within that structure, you have massive freedom to create whatever you want to create in whatever way it it appears before you. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Do you, and, and it's also interesting when you were talking there about the resistance from your publisher with no, regards. Oh, sorry. My publisher is totally open to it. Ah. The edition is run yeah. by Charles Boyle, and he's like, I love it. It's just sentence after sentence after sentence. These sentences come at you. It's the, the mainstream publishers. Ah, okay. They want a much more, they want a story, generally speaking. They want a story, and they believe that the story has a beginning and has a middle and has an end. And, you know, I'm not saying there are some really great stories that are written like that, but they're absolutely fantastic. There's some great books that are quite conventional in their structure. 
but they don't have to always be like that. That's yeah. not I, I can't write like that. That's not my experience of living. It's not my experience of going through the world. I've always written in a sort of, I just sort of dive in where mm. wherever I dive in. And I, I, it's more like going sort of going out into the ocean on a boat and then just diving off the edge and seeing what you discover there. You don't always start at the beach and swim out there. Mm. Mm. You know what I mean? And I exactly. feel like I, I'm very drawn to that sort of, that's my experience of living in the world is just sort of, just sort of landing in a place and then seeing where you end up that's how I mm. like to I mean I wrote in my last book quite a lot about the fact that I don't like maps I don't mm. like following maps I don't like knowing where I'm going I like getting lost and seeing where I end up and if that means I then have to kind of pitch a lift back to the beginning then I'll do that mm. and I don't, I don't believe that everybody lives their life through a sort of mapped out, you know, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this. Some people do, but I think a lot of people don't. Our lives are much more higgledy-piggledy than that. And that's mm. how I, it's the only way I can write. It's not even like an intention. It's just that's all I can do. I don't mm. understand plot and narrative. I just don't, I don't really even, I don't really understand mm. what they're for. It's like kind of, I don't know what they're there to, to hang things off. I just don't, I can't structure in that way. And I think it's one of the reasons why I stopped being a journalist, because I became very uneasy with the idea of, of writing a report that was a sort of factual truth that would then go on the World Service and millions of people would hear it at the World Service. It'd like be broadcast to like 26 million, 27, 50 million listeners around the world. And I often find myself thinking, particularly in conflicts, in, in war, well, is that definitely what I saw? Like, you know, a bomb would fall and everybody would go running and I would be there and I would, like, be writing of my recollections and the, I'd be thinking, well, did that happen or have I now imagined that? Mm. And I think it's, you know, anything that we experience in the life, particularly if it's very traumatic, what is the truth of that experience? It, it's sort of... You know, my truth might be fine, but that's not the final word. It's not like yeah. an objective, all-encompassing, this is what happened. Well, this is the whole thing with perception, because how you perceive the world and perceive what is going on with you is completely, it's, it's you know, what we see with our eyes isn't actually what our brain tells us we're seeing. Our brain will tell us we're seeing something completely different. And what and what our brain tells us that we're seeing is to do with our past experience, is to do with emotion, our upbringing, is to do with everything. So how we translate what we see is completely individual. So what you're saying, you know, I think is really interesting in terms of the responsibility, I suppose, that that journalists have or anyone has when reporting something to report it in a way that that and I don't know if it is possible to report it in a way that um people can digest without being so definitive like we have lots of reports recently with uh, about wars that are going on very close to us obviously about what's happening and personally I can hear those things, but I'm very loath to accept anything that I hear as the truth. 
because I'm not experiencing it. And also I can see pictures of things, but again, it's, it's from what perspective am I being shown that? And, and um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm like you, I'm very much of a, a, a questioner um, and also um, want to allow to give myself time to take in as much information as I possibly can and make an and make as much of as an informed decision about what I'm seeing as possible. Yeah. Um it's interesting when you were talking then what what uh, so so your publisher is very supportive but that idea or, well not that idea that fact I suppose that that other the wider publishing world uh is is um less accepting of anything that veers from uh, mainstream because, and again, I suppose it's what you were talking about, um, how people want to label you as a writer. Well, this will label you as this, will label you as a war correspondent, will label you as somebody because that's what people can grab a hold of and they can digest easily, as opposed to well, what really is the truth? You know, who who really is this person? That's you know, can, can we afford to be honest about what this is, or are are we just completely uh, obsessed with branding and how we're going to sell someone and their work? And what what do you think of? Uh, well, I mean, I think you know, it's like you know the. The world we live in is about profit, isn't it? We live in yeah. a world where yeah. profit is the 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 guiding principle by which by which the world is structured. It seems to me, you know, the the, the moment we are living in now, the sort of obscene pursuit of profit mm. seems to override everything. And so, I think what happens with big publishers who's role it is it seems is to make profit i mean to publish books but also to make profit from books mm. is they they're looking at books where they're going to get numbers it's the number of books mm. they can sell um and so i can totally understand why they wouldn't be drawn to a book like the book i'm publishing in january because i think it's unlikely that tens of thousands of people are going to absolutely love it because I think it's quite a confusing book. You know, I think that there will be people who will love it, but I suspect it will be quite a small number of people. And, I mean, should I say this, sort of speaking in public in a way that might be listened to by lots of people, but I'm not really that bothered if, I mean, obviously I'd like to make more money from my writing. It's very hard to make money from writing these days, and I would like to make a good living for my writing. But I'm not really that interested in how many people like my work mm. i'm much more interested in writing what i write because that's how i write and then if 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 my peers and people that i respect like the work that's what gives me deep satisfaction mm. and mm. i'm very aware that i'm drawn to artists and performers and writers who who also fit that that kind of groove. I mean, one of the theatre groups that I'm very inspired by is a group called Forced Entertainment. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, do you know four centimetres? Yeah, 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 I do. Yeah. So many people don't know them, have never heard of them. And I mean, to be honest, I hadn't heard of them until I met Julian, my husband, mm. who 20 years ago took me to see a four-cent show at the place near Euston Station. Yeah. And it was kind of like a life-changing event for me, seeing, seeing that performance. It was absolutely amazing. Now, next year, I think they celebrate their 40th anniversary. I've been following them for 20 years, so I missed mm. out on the first 20 years. But I'm amazed by how many people don't know about forced entertainment. They're such an amazing group. They produce yeah. such fascinating, disruptive theatre. But I don't really care that they're not kind of on at the National Theatre and everybody's rushing to see them. Mm. I'm just happy that they exist and that I can go to see their work. Mm. The number of people who see them is not a marker of exactly of how good they are. I mean, I'm, I don't want to sort of sound like, oh, you know, if you don't have too many people, let me, you know, if you're like a minority sport, it means you're the most interesting. Because I don't think that's always true. There is mainstream stuff that gets mm. out there that is really good. There are mainstream writers who I think are really, really good. But often it seems to be the stuff on the fringes mm. that is the most interesting because that's where people can take risks. Yes. And where, you know, yes. and, 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 and that's what interests me. That's what interests me is seeing, is sort of trying to burrow into the, I wouldn't call it truth. I'm very uneasy with the kind of idea of people looking for truth. I'm not really looking for truth, but I'm trying to burrow into what, what, what it is I'm trying to explain I'm sort of trying to find out pushing myself as far as I can to to see if I can sort of write into this kind of wormhole mm. and and what will I discover there and yeah yeah I'm not sure if that makes sense but that's kind no. of no no no, it completely makes sense. It completely makes sense. It, it, it's when you talk about risk, I think that's really that's something that's very close to my heart, and I think it's really important. Um, it's important to be able to take risks and to understand that actually, it's the search for something where you find you, you find the gold, you know, or you 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 it being able to explore because I think I think a lot in society. Now we everything is so immediate, and we expect an answer, and we expect the right answer. And failure and experimentation is is kind of not really allowed. You know, it's the worst thing yeah. ever if yeah. you're if you fail. Oh my god, you fa and but failure is the, one of the most incredible things because it teaches you about where you you know what you want. And I think failure is a I don't know. I think failure is. Our, our our view of failure is very warped because it's incredibly healthy to fail because if you don't fail you you never learn anything you if you're not if you're not prepared to fail you won't you won't learn stuff and i think people have been frozen in terror about failing and i yeah especially in schools I mean, and how they teach fail, at the moment kind of mean, it's not so much failure as kind of maybe you didn't quite manage to pull off what you were planning to. Yeah. It didn't quite come out. But that experience of trying to get there yeah. is is pushes you along the way in terms of in terms of creativity. It sort of pushes you it, it's it's just another step along the road. Yeah. But it it's, it didn't necessarily come out didn't quite you didn't quite pull it off. I wouldn't mm. but I mean I'm even sort of uneasy 
to talk about sort of whether something's a failure or not. Yeah. It's very sort of binary, is it? Did you succeed yeah. or did you fail? Yeah. I mean, that's well, sort of taking a driving test. Obviously, if you, if you, you know, if you jump the red light, then you failed. But, but, but that's about safety. Yeah. But I feel like with, with, when you're being creative, there's really no such thing as failure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's more as to whether it's partly about instinct, isn't it? And trying out ideas and on your path, on the path to, to finding a, a, a sort of structure that has allowed you to formulate the ideas and express the ideas in the way that you were you were hoping. And I mean, I must say, with the book that's coming out in January, it might be a failure. It might be people read it and they're just like, what on earth has she done? I mean, the first book was quite interesting. The second one was like, <laughs> doing now? I mean, I'm kind of prepared for that. I'm very prepared for people reading it and thinking, what she is it is it a novel or is she is she writing about herself or is she writing about someone is it a narrator and that's kind of even I'm not entirely sure what I've done mm-hmm. but I I did it and it, it's done and then you then you move on to the next project don't you and and but what and how do you feel about it though this is the thing as you were saying there if you feel that you've achieved what you wanted to achieve in this book mm-hmm. then I don't know. Ask yeah. me what I feel about it next year. This time okay. next year. I'm really looking forward to reading. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Really, really looking forward. And I agree with you about failure. It's kind. Of, you're right. It is really bloody binary. Is that a success or a failure? It's like fuck off. You know, I'm just trying. I'm experimenting. You know, leave me. Leave me the hell alone. I'm having. An ex- I'm experimenting here. You know, and and again, it's this this pressure to produce something that is you know, worthy in some way. It's like, fuck off. I had this, I had this really fantastic conversation again with, with an artist, Christopher Roski, fantastic artist. And we were talking about what it is to be a successful artist and joking about that. And, and also something that he was saying that was really important, I think is, is that in, in, a foundation in art school before you go into art school you have an opportunity in a foundation course to really experiment and allow yourself to try lots of different things which we had the privilege i i did an art foundation course you know years and years ago in the in the early 90s i think his was in the late 80s and it was and it was it really has helped me and my work and the way I work because I don't feel I'm not fearful of failing. I like to try. I like to say yes, yeah. you know. And I think that's. I think that's. One I feel of them. you see. I'm, I mean, I envy you in a way because I've never done any artistic training. I've never. I mean, people have sometimes asked me if I would do a creative writing workshop, and I'm kind of like. Well, I'm not even sure how I do it, let alone telling someone else how to do it. I just keep trying. I just keep. In fact, a friend of mine, slightly name dropping, Bernadine Evaristo, she always said to me, look, there's a difference between writers and authors. Authors are writers who never gave up, i.e., you know, an author being a published writer. Mm. They're the people who never gave up. And you just keep trying and trying and trying and pushing and pushing and pushing and you and you learn. But I feel like one of the things I envy of friends of mine who've done arts 
degrees or art foundations or they've done a degree in theatre or they've had that mm. training, I always feel like you, maybe you kind of learnt, you learnt those things that are so important about being an artist, about how to sort of follow instincts and how to mm. follow prompts and how to devices basically to unlock your creativity because we live so much in a world well I certainly feel was living in the UK where everything is geared against creativity oh gotcha so to be creative is this constant fight and I feel like having been a journalist you know my ground my grounding is really as a journalist as a BBC news reporter I mean you couldn't get much more kind of mainstream than that I'm constantly having to, it's like the pathways in my brain. I was discussing this with a friend of mine the other day who did a PhD and was an academic for a while, and mm. now she's a creative author. And we were both talking about the fact that it's almost like there are bits of our brains that are so embedded with the kind of training of, in her case, academia, and in my case, journalism, that when we're writing now, we still have these moments where if we're not very careful, we slip back into mm. that. So I slip back into kind of needing to explain everything and needing to back everything up because that's what I did as a journalist. You need to sort of prove that you are, you do know what you're talking about, as mm. opposed to when you're being creative, sort of following your instincts and going into places where you have doubt and where you don't really know what you're doing and seeing what's in that strange dark space over mm. there i um, think yeah i i completely agree i think also when you're when you're in a create when you're in a creative state and it's and it's working in inverted commas you know that's you can feel it because you're in flow yeah. there are things that there are things that come to you because you've been allowing things to 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 uh cogitate you know and 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 suddenly something will come to you out of nowhere and then once it comes to you this flow it just things just start to flow i find that very much so you know i'll i'll be thinking about how how if i'm if i'm making something i'll be thinking well how do i how is that how is that going to work and then and i've been thinking and thinking and thinking and and i find it mostly when i'm walking and then i'll suddenly suddenly boom the the answer comes to me um and it's an interesting, yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think it's this thing about being consistent and not giving up, actually, also. Um, uh, and going, and you do have to go through a certain bit, a, a certain pain barrier, <laughs> uh, I think. Um, repeatedly, repeatedly. Mm, it, once mm. you've gone through one, it's not like that's the end of the pain barrier. You have no. to keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. That's what should nightmare about it it's just like there's and in my case there's not a lot of flow there's a lot of pain a lot of barriers <laughs> that i'm smashing down in my head yeah constant yeah. Sort of, and then surprise when you get there and you think god what a I, nightmare how did i do pull that one out of the bag i'm not yeah. even sure exactly but that's it that's the wonderful thing about being creative it's just like allowing yourself to 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 do it allowing yourself to suffer us artists we suffer for our art. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think um, what I'd also actually, sorry, changing tack slightly yeah. is um, I know recently, so you, 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 you are an author. 
but also you work, you write reviews. I do. And... Um, I do review other books and I do the odd bit of review of art and also theatre. Yes. I mainly review other people's books. And so, yeah, mm, that's it. That's how, <laughs> and how's that going? Is it, is it, do you find that when you're reviewing other people's books with the way that you write, where you're coming from, do you find it difficult? Do you find it a hard task? Do you I find think it? reviewing is very hard, but there's one thing I can't, I can never remember who, with the writer who said this, but the thing I try to remember when I'm reviewing is your prime, a, your prime sort of function, I feel, as a reviewer, depends a bit on who you're writing for. I tend to write for The Guardian and the TLS, Times Literary Supplement. Those are the people mm. I write, write for most. Um, I try to judge the book on, I try to understand what it is the author has tried to, to do. Mm. And then to judge that book from that perspective, as opposed to saying whether or not I think the book is any good or not, or whether mm. I like the book or not. I kind of think in a way that's almost irrelevant. Mm. Mm. Whether, the, whether the, 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 the author has succeeded in the task they, they set about pursuing. Um, and, and I feel like when you think, when you get yourself into that mindset, it becomes much easier to review the book. Yeah. And I read a, I reviewed a book recently that I really did love. I mean, I think the, the, the author really pulled it off. But I also have the added bonus of absolutely loving the book. I can show it to you, actually. It's this book. Um, I've got it here on my... Give her a little... Give them a little plug. Isabel Weidner. Corey Barr does Social Mobility. Wow. Highly recommended. It's a novel. It's weird. It's funny. Politically very serious, and it's a very well written piece of, uh, of work. Isabel won the um, Gold, the Goldsmith Prize with their last book, Sterling Carrot Gold. I mean, I read Sterling Carrot Gold, but I think this is an even better piece of work. Corey, Corey Farr does Social Mobility by Isabel yeah. Wagner. Yeah, yeah. So that was a book I, I had for. I mean, I was very lucky to be invited to review their book by mm. The Guardian. I just thought, what an honour to be, to be invited to write about such a great piece of work. Mm. Um, and the other recent, the most recent thing I've reviewed, actually, which I know you've also seen, was um, Grenfell. Yeah. Play at the National Theatre by Gillian yeah. Slovo, which I was not expecting to like. And I was quite uneasy about being asked to review it because I thought I just had this awful feeling it was going to be very voyeuristic and kind of watching a play about the horror and the trauma that people went through either dying or surviving the Grenfell fire um but actually I I I wouldn't say enjoyed but I'm very glad I saw the play I thought it was Mm. a really good piece of work well, I think that is the what, – what I saw it on your – well, I I wanted to see it, and then when you, you talked about reviewing it, I went to see it. Um, and I think, again, and this is going back to media and how the responsibility that media have in uh, reporting um, incidents, um, because – 
at the time, the way Grenfell was uh, reported, um, get, painted a kind of painted a, a, a picture, I would say, of the of the people who lived there that was completely uh, not true. <laughs> I think I think a lot of the reporting things that things during that show th- things that really shocked me and. And made me, and and also made me really question again, question what I read and what I see in the news. I mean, I I haven't read a newspaper for twenty years. I don't think I've I've kind of I don't watch the news at all. How does she know what's going on in the world? But you know, I will look. I will look on social media. But in terms, I will look into my glass ball. But in terms of when I say, you know, I, I will have looked at news reports of various things, but no, I'm not an avid, I've got to watch the news and believe everything and I, I hear. Very different. I mean, I don't, I haven't got a TV. I don't watch TV news, but I yeah. follow the news obsessively. Yeah. I'm totally obsessed with the news. I yeah. follow the news and I follow the news, I feel like, around the world quite obsessively. Yeah. I do, I do absorb what's going on in the world but i'm not but again i'm not a, an avid news a paper reader but um with with grenfell it was really i think what really struck me was this um this this media coverage which gave us a certain uh perception of what uh of who lived in that block who they were what they were doing and when you actually go and see the play i don't there will be a spoiler alert everyone when you go and see the 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 play you really understand that actually these people would not only done such a really massive disservice in the uh uh in the way that they've been portrayed in the media but also in still now the way that this the 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 the, the trial i suppose the inquiry which is still, has the inquiry still has finished, but they're now writing their second report. And that I think won't be published till the beginning of 2024. And it, and it won't be till then that if there's going to be any criminal process that that can take place with the police. So they're waiting yeah. for the second part, the second section of the report to be published. So what, yeah, because I know I was, I I sat there and I watched, and again, as, as like you, you I, I couldn't say, the play, yes, I sat yeah. there and I watched the play, and I, <laughs> and I thought, and I, I was really uh, just stunned uh, with, with the information that, with, that was um, made public, um, I was absolutely stunned. I, I'm stunned now. I'm stunned that people haven't been arrested. People aren't in prison now because it, it's such, it's it's criminal, incredibly, it, it just made me really angry. <laughs> I've, I've, the injustice of things and still how those people are being, uh, still how the, how the residents um, are being treated. Um, I'm, yeah. It's it's a really important piece of work, I think. I think it was um I mean I felt that the that the play itself, I didn't feel that any information came out that wasn't already available. I mean, I followed I mean again, this is because I'm slightly obsessed. Mm. I've been reading 
a magazine that I'm sure that most people haven't heard of called Inside Housing. And Inside Housing wrote that they were consistently, in my view, the people who covered Grenfell the best. Mm. There was a guy, I think he was called Luke, and then there was this other guy called Peter Atz, who, who's written the book that, about yeah. Grenfell that then won the Orwell Prize just this year. Yeah, that book. Show but me the bodies. Luke, Show me the bodies. So, they both worked for they both worked for Inside Housing. I think Luke has left, but Peter's still there. And their reporting on Grenfell was absolutely phenomenal. And I picked that up on Twitter, to be fair, on Twitter. And I became and I just followed everything they wrote. I read, mm. and I felt like a lot of the. So for for me, the play, I, and I'm sure this is the case for a lot of people. We'd heard a lot of the stuff before, but there was something about watching it in this very kind of concentrated form of three hours roughly isn't it two and a half mm. three hours of, of, and certain details being kind of pulled out from the inquiry but also the experience of the people who lived there from before the fire yes and then yeah. on the night of the fire itself and and this I think you know again that I had read about what Julian Slovo who wrote the play or who you know who edited all this material because it's basically a verbatim play so it's more yeah. of editing as opposed to writing but what she and also the residents who had collaborated with her the survivors who collaborated with her what they had wanted to get from the play and as I understand it what they wanted was to keep Grenfell in the public's attention and also to try and radicalize those of us who've seen it so that we also yeah. become part of the movement of people demanding the justice. But yeah. clearly there are quite a lot of people who should at least stand trial in a yeah. criminal court. Um, whether they're found guilty or not is another question, but they should at least be put on trial. And I found, to my surprise, I did find watching the play, I ended up actually watching it twice because the first time there was a technical fault, so it ended early, so I then had to go back and watch it Again, so I watched the whole play twice. The first time I watched it, I discovered that I was sitting in front of one of the survivors, um, Ed Schaffern, the guy who had run the, the Grenfell blog, who'd done mm. so much important work. But mm. actually, that because of his work he did with that blog, there's a whole lot of text that... Um, that, that, that is proof of all the work they the residents have been demanding mm. prior to the fire, saying we think there's going to be a fire, there could be a fire, and then sure enough there was a fire. But he was sitting right behind me, and he wow. acted out on stage, the guy with the ginger hair, who's a really yeah. great actor. He's he fantastic. Right, like the real man was sitting there. And it was quite odd having this experience of of him there. So in the interval, I turned around and I sort of said, wow, you know, I was like, you know he's a social worker. You know, again, yeah. so he's a man, he's a social worker. The second time I saw it, um, and the other weird thing was the first time I saw it, the man sitting next to me who was also taking notes, who was also reviewing it, he introduced himself to me as Francis Beckett. And his dad was Oswald Mosley, fascist Oswald Mosley's um, spokesperson who'd set up the British version of the Nazi party. And he was sitting next to me. Wow. To be fair on Francis Beckett, he is not a fascist or a Nazi. Yeah. He's kind of lived with the trauma, I guess, of the father who was. Well, so yeah. was slightly weird. So I had Ed behind me. I had the son of Oswald Mosley's leading cheerleader next to me. 
<laughs> now and again, the nice guy, Francis Beckett. And yeah. then the second time I saw it, the man sitting next to me was um, Peter Apps, who, who, who wrote that book all about Grenfell. Yeah. And he won the prize for it. And then the man sitting in front of me, all these men, got up in the middle of the interval, offered me a piece of chocolate, a tall white guy, probably in his late 60s, maybe early 70s, mm-hmm. and just started to slag off the play really loudly. In the interval. <laughs> and saying why he thought it was crap and it was just preaching to the converted and it was a waste of time. He didn't really know what he was doing there. And, and that, I mean, I didn't agree with him, but I didn't, I wasn't going to have a row with him, a stand-up argument with him at the play. But I found myself thinking, you know, to some extent, he's right. This is preaching to the converted because it's a self-selecting group who come to see the play. Mm-hmm. But seeing the play did, when I left, and you know, and you and you walk out and you go out on a kind of a sort of, you know, a, a sort of version of the silent protest that has mm-hmm. been taking place around Grenfell in real life, I did find myself thinking, I will go on the next silent march. I will go and I will yeah. participate in this because I now, I've sort of felt that the, the play did give me a sense of, I, I don't know if this is quite the right way to put it, but almost a sense of having, feeling like I have a license now to kind of, to, to participate. I mm. do feel like that whole thing of the, 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 the act is saying you're now part of our community. Mm. I did feel that and I thought having seen the play and maybe also having written a review about it I thought yeah I am now part of this community and in a way I already felt that because I live in London and it's kind of you know it's my city but it's not my hood you know where Grenfell Mm. happened is my neck of the woods it's the other side of London to me but I now feel a real sort of obligation and a sense of belonging to that community Mm. Mm. I mean, I also saw, I don't know if you saw the Steve McQueen film. No, Red I didn't. Star. I haven't seen it yet. That no. was astonishing and very, very different to the play because it's completely silent. There are no words at all. And it's a work of art. But mm. that, that film, it's a phenomenal piece of work, also just reminded me and galvanised me to think, you know, these are your people. This is your community. This is your city. This is your country. You have to participate in helping insist on justice yeah. done. And that's a good thing. I sort of thought the man who was yelling at me in the audience, I sort of thought, how can you have a problem with that? You know, how can you have a problem with that? And I know there's been politics around the play and whether it had everybody's consent who lives in Grenfell. And I think that was mixed. I think some people in Grenfell who survived Grenfell aren't happy about it and some people are. But I did feel myself that it was a respectful play and it took the material very seriously and it was done in a way that was incredibly considered. Yeah, and and, and careful. Yeah, and and considerate, I thought, yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. It's, I think... It's interesting, isn't it? Because you say that there's this self-selecting group, the audience is going are going there and they have knowledge and maybe this is my, you know, me not looking at papers and things. But it what shocked me was the was actually some of the information that was available that has been available. I'm I'm I've seen what, things like, what are you thinking of? Well, I'm thinking of maybe 
I what was shocking I found was the testimony of the people that had supplied the uh I mean it's one thing the to know yeah it's it's one thing to know about shocking. the insulation being incredibly combustible which I knew but I didn't know to to hear the actual words spoken yeah. yes from the inquiry to hear words spoken by people who are are responsible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, it's, it's astonishing. You know, that I found. Like they had had witnessed, as in their words, a towering inferno in yeah. their labs. In a test. And they still sold it. And they still sold it. <sighs> it's, it's that, those were the things I think that I found yeah. that you can't translate in from reading something in a paper you you know it's it's those it was it was it was that it was the the, the sheer uh the shit that 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 their only uh focus is profit over lives just really hit me in my gut you know yeah. uh and i think that the way at the start of the play we see life before and we understand that these people are neighbors and they actually whatever part of london they live in they're our neighbors they're our community we are yeah, all yeah, one yeah. community i think that was yeah. set up incredibly yeah. well and i think and then this uh unfolding of events and this idea that, I mean, things like, that, for example, um, somebody being treated differently, the prejudice involved yeah. in the people who are taking the calls. Hey, I'm not saying all of the people that were taking the calls, but, no, but when you, shocking. it was shocking. Okay, you speak with an English accent, we're going to talk to you slightly differently or completely yeah. differently yeah. to somebody whose English isn't very good. Yeah. And and awesome. that perception, you know, of of the value of life, I found yeah. really shocking, Just and it sort of really hit home. A mirror up to this country, yeah. yes, that is what this country, yes, well, not just this country, but around the world. I mean, and we see that all the time with the so-called small votes narrative, which has just sort of taken over. The, the news and has now become practically normalised so that even the opposition party, the Labour Party, talk about small votes as if they were, as if they, as if the small votes were not full of people who are escaping horrors and whose lives, each of their lives matter. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's a bad, we're in a bad way. We're in a very bad way. We really are. Yeah. I think, and this, and I think this then goes back round to the beginning of saying the responsibility that that people have in reporting things because it will affect people's perception of the truth, whatever the truth is, or people's perception of facts. Um, uh, and also, when people even when people hear facts, <laughs> they don't want to accept those facts, you know. Um, because they have something that's been embedded in them through a lot of the time, very prejudiced reporting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because I think what I learned with Brexit is in some ways facts don't matter. I mean, the, you mm. know, we, we had a lot of information available to us in 
on the internet. Every, most people these days, most people in this country have access to the internet. Not everybody. I've got a neighbour on my street who doesn't. But most people do. And if you want to find out the facts and the truth of stuff, you can if you want. Yeah. But I think what Brexit shows, certainly in the context of Britain, of the UK, was that it doesn't really, people, people aren't swayed by facts, they're swayed by emotion. Yes. So even all the facts that were provided about what would happen if we voted for Brexit, that didn't alter people's voting. People were, were motivated by, by emotion and, and desire and mm. loathing, not by the facts on the ground. And now the facts are beginning to kind of inevitably show their ugly faces and we're beginning to realise what's, what's bad about Brexit. Quite a lot of people have changed their mind and they now wish that we hadn't had Brexit. And it's mm. like, well, guys, should have thought about that before. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> I'm really sorry on a Sunday morning to bring up Brexit. I mean... Don't worry about it. End on a more jolly note. I know. Like well, I was, I was down, just, I was suddenly thinking, oh God, we've plunged into the Brexit hole. But Sorry. um, no, no, are, God, that's absolutely fine. This is where we are as a country. Yeah, and I think maybe then we can. How do how how do we get out of this? Um, I think in terms of, I think it, that's a question for you. But just a small I'm one. I'm not going to answer that. I'm not even uh, going to answer. No, that. I'm, I'm being. I'm being. I know, but I think, I think, in terms of some of the stuff that we've talked about today, um, and especially the thing that Grenfell highlights and what you were saying is about getting messages out there. Grenfell, the the play, yeah, is getting the message out there, um, and keeping going. And keeping and realizing that we are connected, and that if we think individually, oh, I don't make a difference. Well, actually, lots of voices together do make a difference. Uh, and I think it's, I think it's also making people understand that 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 they need to engage in some way, engage in making an effort. And actually, it's not that making an effort. People think it's uh, some kind of big thing to stand up you know what am i risking if i stand up and and use my voice what do, will i will there be personal risk to me it's like you need to stand up and use use your voice because our voices are really I think, important I mean, yeah i think you definitely do and i think that activism and protest is really important but i i also feel i feel like i'm very aware of the fact that it certainly feels like in the moment and maybe it's always been you know, it's always been this way. But I thought a lot after the, the seeing the Grenfell play about, you know, why hadn't I maintained a kind of um, attention to Grenfell in, in mm. the six years between seeing mm. between it happening and this play coming on? Um, or, you know, and also with the Steve McQueen film, which also came out this year. And I think it's partly because there's always another disaster there's always another crisis happening so you know you you know you think about Grenfell but then there's there's other major crises that are happening like you know 
the the most recent one, COVID and lockdown, mm-hmm. and suddenly you've got a whole lot of other crises. You know, people's lives that are falling apart in your friendship and family, community networks, and you're worrying about them because of what happened during COVID and people who've got long COVID and old people who can't get out of their homes, and suddenly your attention is distracted because you've got another problem to deal with. Mm. And I feel like the way that many people in this country are coping from day to day is they've constantly got another crisis. They've got to worry about if they've got enough money now to pay their mortgage if they're lucky enough lucky enough to have a mortgage as opposed to paying rent. Mm. Suddenly mortgages have gone up. So that's the big crisis. Like how am I going to get enough money? You know, they, they might have been interested in Grenville, but now they're worried about how they're going to pay their bloody mortgage. And then mm-hmm. it's like, how are they going to pay for their, their gas bills and their food? Because as we're told, you know, so we're told, oh, the Ukraine wars pushed all these things up. It's like there's constantly another catastrophe coming around the corner. And so how many of these things can you concentrate on at, at once? I mean, it's mm. it's dreadful. And if you're, if you're sort of on, if you're interested in justice, you care about justice in the world, I feel like there's, you know, then, uh, then there's something goes on with the Met. That, that you know, you've got a police officer who who um, murdered Sarah Everard, or yeah. you've got police who've killed another young black man, or you've got police who've um, been involved in corruption, and so you're then involved in that bit of activism. Or suddenly mm. there's a you know, the, the local com- the local council have chopped down 20 full-grown trees, which we really need our green space. And those are, so then you join that pro. And I feel like I'm constantly joining mm. so many protests. You know, I've recently got involved with Just Stop Oil. And mm. I feel like now that's taking up my attention. And it, it's really hard. You can't spread yourself too thin or then you just become mm. ineffective. So you, it's almost like you have to choose a few things that you're going to care yeah. about and you really focus on those. Yeah. And so going back to see Grenfell, I found myself thinking, well, this is really something that really, really matters. Mm. Um, how do you put that on a scale of, you know, I do volunteering with a, with a charity that works with young refugees who've come here. Many of them have come here across, across the, the, the channel and across the mm. Mediterranean on little boats. Do I focus on them? Do I focus on Grenfell? Do I focus on Just Stop Oil? It's, it's kind of like, is this like the modern condition or has it always been this way? That there's constantly things we're having to fight for and demand justice for. It's yeah. never ending. Yeah, it is never ending. I think, I think, obviously, in terms of what people focus on, the things that really or what they don't focus on, but what people, uh, uh, some people focus on or choose to focus on are things that directly affect them initially. Yes. Um, And then I think it's, as you say, then I think it is a choice. You have to, um, because because obviously our, our connection with the wider world has grown through, you know, the internet, through, uh, when people started flying to other parts yeah. of the world yeah boats, exactly boats and planes we've become all interconnected but i just i i do think it is important to choose something and choose and decide and and put your even putting your name down on something on a, a i mean those things there's lots of god I've, i'm following numerous things in terms of uh petitions you know, but it's actually, I find myself 
having to be that's why I think something like Grenfell the play was so potent because it is a real reminder that this is about individual people and their lives and actually going out spending an hour walking with people and showing support is is possible you know it is something that I can do you know and and it's powerful um and it's just taking that time and deciding to do it, which I yeah. think is, um, yeah, yeah. yeah it's so, something I think we can all, you know, we can, we can do that. That is, that is something that's possible. Yeah. Making a stand, standing up for things, using yeah. our voices, you know, but um, Laura, God, it's, as I said, we could talk for ages. I could talk to you about lots of different things. Um and I love talking to you and thank you for coming thank on you. to the show. Yeah, no, it's been it's been great. We got to there hear. Eventually. <laughs> it's, yeah, we did. Start. We did yeah. it. We did it. Yes. We never gave up. Exactly. Um oh thank you. That so if people want to normally I ask if people want to contact you or find out more about you, are you on Twitter? What are your social? I'm on Twitter. I am now, very recently, I'm now on Instagram, which means that I'm also, I think, on Threads, but I don't really go on Threads yes. with anybody. Threads is new. Which I'm currently rebuilding, which will be ready in about, actually, I think at the end of this week. Okay. Unstrung, no, Laura Paulson Unstrung or Unstrung Laura Paulson. Okay. And, but, I mean, yeah, I mean, people can contact me. If, if they so wish, they'll be able to find me. I'm very easy to find. Okay, but come to Walthamstow. Okay, yeah, which I'm going to. Let's go for a walk in Epping Forest. I'm, I would love that. Epping. E- Epping. Yeah, let's. What would let's I do, do without Epping? Epping? Yeah, let's. Same. Yeah, and I love walking, so yeah, I'd love to go for a walk with you and the dog. Um, so what I'll do is I'll pop all your social media handles, details, etc., into the show notes at the end. Um, and I show just notes. the show notes. I'll pop those into the show notes yeah. after the show. Um, and um, thank you. Thank. It's great to hear your. It's great to to hear about your perspective, especially on writing and the way you write, because I think that is and the way you approach. I should say the way you approach writing and approach creativity, because. I think it's really important and some people who are listening may be wondering, is there a right way? Is there a wrong way? It's just there is a way and you just need to find the way, I think, which is which is something that I think is really important because we second guess ourselves all the time. Is this right? Yeah. Am I doing it right? Blah, 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 yeah. Blah, blah. Yeah. You know, and I and I think it's just about choosing and deciding. I think, which has been a theme of this conversation, is choose and decide. Choose something, decide to do it, and go for it. Um, yeah, thank you, and I'm glad you chose to to chat today. Thank you. I'm glad yeah. you chose me. <laughs> I'm glad I chose you. I'm glad. <laughs> um, and thank you, everyone, for listening to the Perception Podcast. Um, please like and follow and share and subscribe and let me know uh, what you'd like to hear more of. And I will see you again next week on the Perception Podcast. Bye. <laughs>